Amen. Come on, isn't it fantastic to be a part of exciting ministries that are helping people all around the world? So uh, the end of service, Pastor Randy's going to give some ideas and some instruction on how we can be a part of that. But come on, how many of you are glad you made it to church today? You fought the cold and we won. Well, I'm delighted to be able to come share with you. Uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, I had a chance to sh- uh, start a series called Also Starring. Uh, and so any chance Pastor Randy invites me and gives me a chance to come and share with you, it's always a great privilege and honor. So I'm delighted to be able to do so. So a few weeks ago, we started this series, Also Starring. And the idea is that in the story of Jesus, so in the Bible, those four books that tell the, uh, the life of Jesus, he walked the earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. You'll find those four books. Uh, and so as we look at the life of Jesus, there are the, you know, the hero, of course, is Jesus. And then you have the disciples, kind of like supporting characters. And then you kind of have Pilate and, you know, you have all these different people crop up. But then there are these groups of people that move the story along. And so week one, we looked at the Pharisees and how they help bring understanding and deepen our, uh, hopefully, our appreciation for the story and the message of Jesus. And then we looked at uh, tax collectors and prostitutes a few weeks ago. Uh, and then today, we're not going to look at a group of people, but we're going to look at the temple. So even though the temple isn't a group of people uh, that move the story along, it is definitely a key part of the background in the life of Jesus. Uh, And so earlier this week, I gave my dad a call, and my dad, um, he's probably watching online, so hey dad, glad you were to dial in. Um, But my dad has been in ministry probably around the time that Noah got finished building the ark. Um, And so I was able to get dad on the phone. He's in the chat right now, so if uh, you're in the chat online, you want to say hi to Chris Wood, he'd love it. Um, but I called up dad and I was like, hey dad, I'm going to be speaking on the temple this weekend. And my dad went for about an hour just talking all these different things. Not only is he in ministry, he's also very big on history. So biblical history is a real thing for him. And so he went and he gave me all this insight and info into the temple. I say that to say, if I say anything this morning, if I share something that really resonates with you, that you think is really insightful and intelligent, I have to give credit to my dad, okay? So I can't take credit for any of that. If there's something that's really deeply profound, Um, you can thank my dad. Uh, Alternatively, if I say something heretical, or if I say something that is terrible and awful and you you wish you'd never ever heard, I think he should take some of the blame as well. I think it's only fair, right? So as we consider uh, the temple, those of you that know the Bible, you'll know the story that uh, it was Solomon that actually built uh, the first temple, the actual physical structure uh, that we come to know as the temple, the specific building. But really, if we're going to look at this and what it means for the life of Jesus, the place to start is all the way back in Genesis, as we start to look at the people uh, that were pursuing God, that wanted to get right with God, that wanted to build a relationship with God, that wanted to live in His promises, they would build altars. And so before we ever get to the temple, uh, really we, the first place to start is the altars that we would see people build in the Old Testament. Uh, and the reason they would build these altars is to come and bring sacrifices. It was a chance to come and pray. And it was a chance to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God so that you could then live forward the rest of your life, grabbing hold of those promises. It acted as a remembrance. And so the altars that were built, they weren't these temporary structures that were put up. They were built as permanent structures that were there, oftentimes to remember what God had done. So oftentimes you'll read in the Old Testament, as God does something incredible in the life of his people, they build an altar to make a sacrifice, to pray, to worship, to get close to God, and to remember what he had done. And so the altar typically was uh, something that was, it was almost like a, a table where you would put an animal sacrifice. And so these altars kind of are a precursor and a pre-understanding as we get towards the temple. The next step in this whole process was the tabernacle. 
And the tabernacle included an altar so they could continue the sacrifices. And this was instruction that was given to Moses to build a tabernacle, which is essentially uh, a giant tent. And this giant tent was uh, something you could take down and put up as the Israelites were moving through the desert. And in the temple, they had a system of priests. They had a system of sacrifices. There was a whole bunch of directions that was given by God uh, so that we could sacrifice and the people of God could sacrifice as they were in the desert so that they could continue this relationship and believing the promises of God. And then we come forward and we find uh, that Solomon is given instructions to build a temple. And we see the same things that are happening again is that there's this, this need to sacrifice. And sacrifice is not something that we do today. I don't know about you, but I've never sacrificed a living animal. Anybody here willing to admit you have killed a living animal? Thank God for that. But uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like getting my hands dirty and sticky and gross. So, we, uh, you know, even though animal sacrifice is not something that is typical for us today, it was something that was common to, uh, back then, and it was understood that the sacrifice was done, whether it was on the altar, or whether it was in the tabernacle, or whether it was in the temple, the sacrifices were done under God's instruction. It was God's direction. It was God's way of doing it. There are different steps that God required that they did to make sure that this sacrifice was, was approved and, and appropriate. There were different steps they had to go through. There were specific priests that had to perform the sacrifices and be involved in the sacrifices. All of this built this picture of, for us to fix this relationship with you, we have to do it on your terms. We can't just bring any old thing. Cain tried that. It didn't work. There is a specific way. If you are going to come and we are going to make our broken relationship right by sacrifice, God had given instructions about how this was to be done and who the priests were going to be able to do this. This is important to remember as we get to the time of Jesus, that the sacrifices reminded us this is God terms and conditions. This is our relationship with our parents as kids. They set the rules. They let the tone of the house be, you know, this is how it's going to be. You're under my roof. You're going to obey my rules. This reestablishes the order of things. We are not in control. He's in control. We are not Lord. He is Lord. And he is establishing how the sacrifices need to go. And so as, as the people would come and they would bring the sacrifices, there was a specific way to remind each and every one of them, not only did we need to do this God's way and not our way, not only did we need to give God leftovers, but we need to give him the best. This was deeply costly. To be able to bring an animal to sacrifice, this was not something that was done easily. This is not something that was done with leftover change in your pocket. This was costly to come perform the sacrifice, which was a way of signifying the healed and whole relationship that people were able to have with God. And in the temple, tabernacle, at altars, there was a time of prayer. There was a chance with a clean conscience, having just major sacrifice, that there is now a healed relationship with God. You can come, you can rededicate and commit yourself to a life of faith, a life following God. And then there is a chance to look forward. The whole point of the, the altars in the Old Testament and the tabernacle is filled with stories and the temple was filled with stories about how God brings breakthrough. As you come and you pray and you say, God, you are in control. God, I commit my life to you. We remember all that you've done. Because you believe that that speaks to all you're going to do. Because how many of you have found out that life has a habit of giving you really, really good reasons to forget the promises of God? But this, this what happened in the tabernacle and the temple, all of it built towards fixing all of those things that you could fix your broken relationship with God by performing the sacrifice. It was a time to pray and worship and recommit. And it was a time for you to look ahead and decide, you know what? God is in all of this and I'm going to stick with him. And uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about the Pharisees, we talked about the exile. 
There's a massive moment in the Old Testament where the people of God, their hearts had gone away from him. And, and if their hearts have gone away from God, they've also gone away from the temple and the worship that would happen there and the sacrifice that happened there, their hearts have gone for him. And just as God promised, despite centuries of warnings, despite centuries of God saying, if you don't fix this up, something bad's going to happen. They didn't fix it up. Something bad happened. And Kimi Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in, ransacked Jerusalem. Part of the ransacking of Jerusalem is he destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. And then 70 years later, after uh, a number of the Jews had been taken and put in exile, uh, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time, but they'd spend time uh, in Babylon and in Persia. They were then sent back, and one of the first things they decided to do is that we need to rebuild the temple. We need to rebuild the temple. You can read about it in the Old Testament, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the first thing they did when they rebuilt the temple was they got the altar back. They got the altar back and they reinstated the priesthood. They reinstated the system of sacrifices so that people could come and through sacrifice they could have a healed relationship with God that they could pray with confidence that God is with them, that God is in this thing with them. And they could look ahead to all that's coming up, all the challenges they were facing, believing that God is in this with them. It was reinstated. And then the temple that uh, was put up, uh, it was a major disappointment to those people that remembered the splendor of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was a fantastic building, a fantastic structure that would have been very impressive. And for the people that remembered that, the rebuilt temple that Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, Zerubbabel, as they put together, it wasn't impressive. It was put together with whatever supplies they could rummage up. It was put together with the burnt stones of the original temple. So even though it wasn't impressive, it was functional. And then as you fast forward a, number, uh, a few hundred years, you come to uh, King Herod. Now, King Herod, this is um, some fascinating history, and um, I want to let you know that if this has piqued your interest at all, if you go on YouTube, there's a million and one videos about the temple, about the life of Herod, some really fascinating stuff. Um, or you can always get my dad on the phone. <laughs> but King Herod, uh, he was hated by the Jews. Here he is, the king that's supposed to be the king of the Jews, but the Jews absolutely hated him, and for really, really good reason. He was a brutal murderer, including the murder of his own sons. He technically wasn't Jewish, and yet through a political game, he was the king uh, of the Jews. There were a number of people uh, within uh, his family that took the name Herod, that went by the name Herod, that come up in the New Testament. But this specific king, the King Herod, uh, that went on to rebuild the temple, uh, he is the same king that said, hey, I want all the boys under two to die when he heard about the, name, uh, the birth of Jesus. The same Herod, that same evil, awful man, who said, you know, I want all the boys under the age of two to be killed, is the same one that built the temple and uh, despite being incredibly evil, and there's no doubt, history gives us zero doubt, this was a wicked, evil, awful man, detestable man. Despite that, he was an engineering genius. I, I mean, the, what he was able to put together, the way that he uh, crafted plans for engineering of the temple and other structures that he built was truly remarkable. I mean, really, I'm an absolute engineering genius. And when he decided to rebuild the temple, initially, it appears from history to win favor with the Jewish people that hated him so much. And the temple was still in somewhat of a disrepair after the exile that happened hundreds of years earlier at this point, but it was functional. Even though it was unimpressive, it was functional, but he was attempting to win favor with the Jews, but Herod couldn't help himself. Even though the point of rebuilding this temple was to win favor with the Jewish people that hated him, 
He really couldn't help himself, and he had to try and impress the Romans as well. And so the temple went from, let me win favor by the Jewish people by giving them a temple that they can use so that they can serve God, honor God, build a relationship with God, build a life of faith. And instead, he said, this is a chance for the Romans to see how awesome I am. And the plan started to grow. And the project started to change. And it started to take on a different form as he is trying to win favor with the Romans. It wasn't enough just to build a temple so that the Jewish people could make the sacrifices that they wanted to. He couldn't help himself. He wanted to make a structure and make a building that the Romans would have to acknowledge. This guy is absolutely amazing. He had to show off, but what he built was absolutely remarkable. He built something that was absolutely incredible. He had to dismantle the the temple that was currently there. Brick by brick, he had to rip it down. He also had to rip up the foundations that it was sitting on. And he built these retaining walls. If, if you can imagine, you know, a, a temple mount, he built uh, a series of walls around the, the mountaintop and then sort of put supporting walls there and filled it with dirt so he could create a flat platform on the top of the mountain. Uh, and a side note, it's the same mountain where Abraham uh, was tested by uh, sacrificing Isaac back in the Old Testament. But that's a whole thing for a whole other day. But it's on the same Mount Moriah where that happened. But a quick side note, this could be the basis of the message today. It's not, but I'll give you a quick side salad if that's okay. The foundations that were originally laid for the temple were based on the promises of God and the desire to see him glorified on the earth. Herod ripped up those foundations and built his own foundations which were rooted in pride. Whole other message for a whole other day. But to get this project underway, it was no small feat. It took around 10,000 local people to be a part of the building project. Um, The stones that were used, and they can verify this because of what still survives today, including the Wailing Wall, which is one of those supporting walls uh, that Herod put in place to create this massive flat area that would become the courtyard. Um, The stones would weigh hundreds of tons. Hundreds of tons. How they transported them from local quarries to the Temple Mount was absolutely incredible. They still got varying theories about how they got these massive boulders from one place to another. Uh, but there are moments in the Old Testament, uh, sorry, excuse me, in the Gospels that you can read the disciples saying, Look at these incredible stones. That's what they're referring to is the giant stones that we use to make up the Temple. And the courtyard that Herod was able to make on top of this, uh, on top of this mountain, on top of Mount Moriah, uh, was around 30 acres. So that's around 30 football fields. This thing was ginormous, perched on top of a mountain. And Herod had completed some other impressive engineering projects. He'd completed uh, a fortress called Masada. He'd uh, constructed the, uh, the city of Caesarea. But this was by far his greatest achievement. I mean, by far, this was his greatest achievement. And for the temple itself... So he had this giant courtyard that was 30 acres, but for the temple itself, he was limited to the plans originally given to Solomon. But he still wanted to show off. So then you have to build everything else around it. So the temple itself was restricted to, uh, to the same instructions that was given to Solomon. And just to give a quick idea, because this will play into where we're going in this, uh, the temple, uh, it got increasingly holier and more restrictive the closer you got. So the courtyard that Herod set up, because he wanted this to be amazing, he said any old buddy can go in here. But as you started to get closer, it started to whittle down how many people could go in. The first layer, what was known as the court of women, uh, any Jewish person could go in there. But then as you got closer, there was another area where only the Jewish men could go in. And then you went another layer and only the priest could go in. And then you had the Holy of Holies. 
Many of you will be familiar with this, but the Holy of Holies is a place that one priest, the high priest could go one time a year on uh, what's now celebrated as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year, and they could experience the presence of God in an unusual and incredible way one time a year. One person, one time a year could go into one place and experience the presence of God in an unbelievable way. It progressively got holier and holier just as Solomon had put the design together. But there was so much more that was attached to this uh, complex, if you want to call it, that Herod was putting together because the primary reason, remember, is not to serve God and not provide the Jewish people a place to sacrifice. The primary reason is to impress the Romans. So one of the things he did is that he put in uh, what was called the Antonia Fortress. And the Antonia Fortress, it would house around 600 Roman soldiers. It was on the northwestern uh, part of the, the complex. And there were 600 Roman guards there at all times keeping an eye on what's going on. If any trouble was going to kick off, there's a good chance it was going to be in the temple. So the Roman guards were there. Again, all of this to try and impress them. And if you look at the design of the temple, uh, the one that Herod built compared to what Solomon built, you can see that it's very Roman or Hellenistic or Greek in style. There are these great big honking columns. There are these beautiful colonnades, these archways that are very, very typical of uh, Greek and Roman architecture. And by the time that Jesus uh, came... By the time that Jesus came, uh, the temple still wasn't complete. The whole project took around 86 years uh, to complete. By the time Jesus came, it was functional, it was working, it was operational, as you can read in the New Testament. But it wasn't yet complete. This project was so big, it wasn't completed at that point. But while the Old Testament generally, I'm being careful here because I don't want to say an absolute, the Old Testament generally speaks favorably about the temple. Especially as you look through the Psalms, the idea of the, the house of God, the temple of God being the place where God's presence would dwell, where his people could meet with him, where they could perform their sacrifices and have a healed relationship with him, where they could pray and worship and look forward to the future and have a renewed sense of, 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 of confidence in the promises of God. Generally, that's the picture you get in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that's not the case. In the New Testament, that confidence is not demonstrated in the relationship with the temple because there was so much uh, corruption that was taking place that it was impossible to have that kind of confidence. So for instance, uh, the priesthood was completely corrupt. The priest was supposed to be direct descendants of Aaron. They were not. This was a political game that Herod was playing and people would buy their way in and bribe their way in and then they would abuse that position politically for their own personal gain. The animals that you were supposed to bring for sacrifice, the Lord gave specific instructions in the Old Testament about how the animals are supposed to be. They're supposed to be perfect and spotless, and that they were selling these lame and you know, raggedy old animals in the temple for sacrifices. There were the money changers that were hanging around. You weren't supposed to bring financial offerings to the temple using Greek or Roman money. You had to use local currency. So there are these money changers all around the temple and they have these exchange rates and they're ripping people off left and right. You've got the Romans and the Antonia Fortress keeping an eye on you at all times, breathing down your neck. The temple itself, it's not this God-glorifying monument that's put up. It is something that is screaming, I want, to be impressed. I want the Roman Empire to be impressed with me. There's nothing about this building, about this structure that would scream confidence. This is going to help you grow in your relationship with God. And for the first century Jewish people, with all this going on, I wouldn't feel that the temple was reinforcing my confidence in God either. But the Jews still needed to play the game. They still needed to meet the requirements of the Old Testament 
But there was a level of resistance and apathy that had sprung up. It was no surprise, as we looked at a few weeks ago, that so many Jewish people were being more and more attracted to the ways of the Pharisees, which had less of a focus on the temple, not zero focus on the temple, but less of a focus on the temple and a greater focus on a studying of scriptures. It's no surprising that many Jewish people were saying, forget that, we're gonna go and be tax collectors because at least that way we get to make a lot of money. There was not this warmth towards the temple. There was not this confidence that the temple was gonna help them in the life of faith. And with all this going on, please remember that the temple was supposed to be a place where you go to sacrifice, to find healing in a broken relationship with God, to have times of worship and prayer, to remember what God has done so that you can have faith and confidence in everything going on ahead. And just put yourself in the position of, of somebody. You know, it was said that about half a million people would go to the temple for Passover. Imagine you're one of the half million and you're there at Passover and you've got your sacrifice and you're stood there and the priest in front of you is somebody that you do not trust. The animal that you've brought for a sacrifice, you know it doesn't qualify. You know it's defective. You know this is not what God wanted. You've got the Romans breathing down your neck intimidated that at any moment it could get ugly. The building around you is not glorifying the God that your heart is towards, that your heart wants to pursue at all. Plus, you're ticked off that you just got ripped off by the money changes on the way in. And right around that time, you hear a commotion behind you. And you come to find out that there's a guy out there flipping tables. And he's got a whip. And he's causing trouble. And he's saying, get out. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And Jesus is coming in and he is flipping tables and he is causing trouble and he has come in to clean up shop and he has come in to reinstate what was lost through the bad worship in the temple. He had come to bring back to the people of God if only we would turn our eyes towards him. Come on, somebody, this is some good news. I don't mind taking a drink break. Oh my gosh, my throat is like John the Baptist flip-flop. <laughs> All right. We're going to go ahead and we're going to read that account of Jesus. And we're going to be in John 2. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, no big deal. The words are going to be on the screen. But I want to just share this with you. This is uh, John 2, starting in verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, this is Jesus, he's in the courtyard of the temple. He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. These are the animals that do not meet the standard that God laid out. For sacrifices, he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Passion for God's house will consume me. So here we have Jesus at a point where the Jewish people would have zero confidence in the sacrifices that they were a part of. Zero confidence that their sacrifice is going to make any difference in healing their relationship with God. Zero confidence that their hearts are being changed as they pray, even though they're completely distrusting this whole theatrical charade that they feel that they're a part of. Where would that confidence for the future come from? 
And then Jesus steps in and says, hold on, I'm going to correct this whole thing. I'm going to clean up this mess. I'm going to make a better way. I saw a, a meme online not long ago where uh, somebody had taken a picture of the, the bracelets with the WWJD. You know, what would Jesus do? And somebody had written, sometimes Jesus would flip a table. I can go with that. But Jesus didn't just go in, get his whip, and start causing trouble. He promised a different way. He promised to fix the mess that the first century Jewish people had found themselves a part of. I'm going to get back to John's gospel, picking up in verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? Like, no kidding, what are you doing? You just kicked over tables and started whipping people and chasing animals out of here. If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to rebuild the temple? What does it mean? And I'm going to go through, and we're going to look at three ways of things that have been lost through this corruption, through Herod's own wickedness, through Herod's own ego, three things that have been lost in the temple that I believe Jesus came to restore to the people that had a heart towards him. The first thing is the nature of sacrifice. And sacrifice, as we've already alluded to, sacrifice is not a pretty process. It is not a fun day. There was a, in the temple, again, a very impressive structure that Herod had put up. There was a drainage system for the blood from the sacrificed animals. I'm sorry if that grosses you out. But there was such a, you know, a messy process that there was literally a drainage system so the blood would wash out of the temple area. The sound that was in there would have been horrifying. The shrill of animals everywhere. The sounds would have been absolutely horrifying. But then Jesus said this, uh, John 1, 29, excuse me, John the Baptist. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why am I bringing up this verse? Because here's John the Baptist saying, you know what? In this whole nature of sacrifice, there is the Lamb of God. This is, this is not necessarily easy stuff to piece together, but, but please roll with me. If Jesus has come and is saying, I'm going to take the place, I'm going to fix up this sacrificial system, it's all with this idea that I am going to be the sacrificial system. John the Baptist, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial system that was broken, Jesus was going to become the sacrificial system, and we see that happening on the cross. And the priest, this is a fascinating thing for me, for understanding who Jesus is, what he did, what he achieved on the cross. A fascinating thought for me is that when you would bring your animal to the priest, the priest would inspect the animal to make sure it's perfect. Now, in the first century, the time period we're talking about, the life of Jesus, that wasn't happening because of the corruption. When the temple was operating or the tabernacle was operating as it was supposed to, you bring the animal and the priest has a poke around and looks to make sure that there's no defect, that it's perfect. At no point does the priest look at the person who brought the animal and inspect them. You inspect the sacrifice. My friends, if you're here and you're a believer and you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, when God inspects you and God pokes around your life and says, have you made it? Are you good enough? Are you qualified? Are you perfect? Can we be in relationship? He's not inspecting you and your behavior. He's expecting the sacrifice. And that was the perfect son of God that died on a cross 2,000 years ago for you and for me. 
Jesus is our confidence in a healed relationship with God. Now, I've got to keep going, otherwise we're going to be here all afternoon. Hebrews 10, 14, the writer of the Hebrews continues this thought. For by that one offering, he forever, forever made perfect those who were being made holy. See, in the temple system, you had to keep bringing sacrifices every so often. At least every year, you'd have to come and bring a fresh sacrifice. But with Jesus, it is forever, not over and over again. It is forever made perfect because of the perfect sacrifice that he made on the cross. And while on the cross, something fascinating happened. A fascinating moment that Matthew records. So we're going to go to Matthew 27, 50. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit, which is a way of saying, as Jesus died... At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this was the curtain to the Holy of Holies. We sang about it today in worship, you know. Death could not hold you. Luke, this is my audition. The veil torn before, never mind. But we were saying about the veil being torn. This is the moment that that song is referring to. As Jesus is on the cross, there is a curtain that is being ripped, uh, being ri- ripped in from top to bottom. And, and so, okay, well, that's great in the song, and that's great in the verse, but what does this mean? That is the curtain to the Holy of Holies. And the curtain was uh, nine centimeters thick. So just to give an idea, it's about a hand's width. So everybody uh, at home, here in church, if you hold up your hand, and you just think, the curtain was that thick. I've never seen a curtain that thick. And as Jesus died, that curtain was split in two. Split into, now keep in mind, as we've already mentioned, the Holy of Holies, this was the area that only the priest could go into one time a year. There is one specific room in one specific temple, in one specific location, that one time a year, one person could go into, but on the cross, the perfect sacrifice of God bust that curtain open so the presence of God that one person could experience one time a year could be experienced by anybody that calls on his name, by all believers, anytime, anywhere, any place, anyhow. Come on, somebody, that's some good news. What went from exclusive became inclusive. What went from restricted became unrestricted. What was limited became unlimited. What became rare became oh so readily available. The problem is that we can fall into a trap as we experience the presence of God that was so, so rare and so, so precious is that because it now is readily available is that we can slip into a mindset of thinking that this is just casual everyday stuff. There is nothing casual about being able to embrace the presence of God. Confidence doesn't mean casual. Confidence that we can step into his presence. Confidence that our relationship with God has been healed because of the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Confidence that we can get around him and have a real, honest to goodness, dynamic, personal relationship with the maker of the universe. That is nothing casual about that, to have that confidence. And one of the reasons I love talking about taking communion and a few weeks ago we had a chance to do communion together is that it means that it gets us to, to stop and think about how much that it cost Jesus to make all this possible. It gives us a chance to pause, to slow down, and say, okay, this did not come easily. This came at a great price and a great expense. Remembering what God has done, remembering what Jesus did on the cross, it completely reorders, restructures, and reprioritizes our lives. You know, and um, I've heard a number of people before talk about uh, it, it's important to have God number one, and then family number two, 
and then career and whatever else is number three or wherever on the list. And, and for some people, that idea of having a list of priorities and God being at the top, that, that may be helpful for you. And I don't want to say that you need to scrap that if that is helpful for you. But I've always found it uh, far much more helpful to think more about like a solar system where you have God in the middle and everything else in my life is kind of one of the planets that's revolving around the sun in the middle. And, and it's been helpful for me because it's not about structuring a priority order, but rather it's about remembering what's in the middle of it all and what's guiding everything. You know, my family is one of the planets. My relationship with my kids is one of the planets. My relationship with my wife is one of the planets. My job is one of the planets. My relationship with my neighbors is one of the planets. And if all of it is revolving around God, I believe that it's really difficult to get into that casual mindset. That idea that everything is polarized around what he's doing. And life has an incredible way of bringing up difficulties, of bringing up challenges. But the next thing that Jesus came to fix as he went into the temple and as he drove people out and as he said, this thing's coming down and when it gets rebuilt, I'm going to be the one that's rebuilt on. The next thing that I want to say is that that remembering, that remembering that he is faithful to his word, that he keeps his promises and that we have got really, really good reason to be confident about all that is ahead. And I wrote this down, and hopefully you've had a chance to take notes, but one of the things I wrote down is that confidence in what he's done gives confidence in what he's doing. Because it can be very easy to get in the mode of life, and the question we want to scream is, God, what are you doing? Especially when it doesn't feel like he's doing much. God, what are you doing? Why am I in a position in life where I feel that your promises are out of my grasp? Why am I at a point where I feel like you are not coming through? Why do I feel that all the things that I want to experience from a life following you is never ever going to happen? Why am I at that place? And if we stop and we think about what Jesus did on the cross, what he's done in our lives to this point, it builds a good, godly, holy confidence that he is able, like we also sang today, to do it again again, that he can do it again. Come on, if one person claps, we all have to. It's just polite. And I'm going to take another drink break. Wowee. All righty. So Jesus, this whole idea about, we're going to rebuild the temple. Going to rebuild it as my body. I, I don't know about you, but I, I find that imagery, I find that concept is, is somewhat unusual. I'm sure that the people hearing this 2,000 years ago have been very confused by it all. But Jesus in John 2:19, okay, uh, all right, Jesus replied, "Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up." I'm sure that would have confused the disciples and the people listening. But all, all of it points to there's a verse in the Old Testament. It's from the Book of Psalms that is referred to many, many times in the New Testament. And from the psalm, Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected on the cross, Jesus was the most ultimate example of rejection you and I could ever imagine. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Well, what's the cornerstone? The cornerstone had a, a, a few different functions. The two main ones is that you would place the cornerstone strategically and that would then be what you use to measure where everything else goes. So there's the cornerstone, you place it, and then you say, that's how wide it needs to be, and that is how long it needs to be from the cornerstone. The cornerstone was unmovable. And where it was, that determined where everything else went. It was the perfect guide for how this temple was to be built. So here we see Jesus as the perfect guide 
for how this temple is to be built, for how our lives of faith are to be built. The second thing, the cornerstone was supposed to be the strongest stone in the structure. If the cornerstone was strong, the building could withstand any earthquake. If the cornerstone was weak, it was only a matter of time until it came crumbling down. So when we say Jesus is the cornerstone, there's a song that's pretty old right now about Jesus being the cornerstone. But that's what it means. He's the guide for my life. He tells me how far to go here, how far to go there. The entire thing is centered on Him. He's in the middle of that solar system. My integrity, my strength, it doesn't come from me. If it was, oh boy, I'd be in trouble. But it comes from Him. My ability to stand before God confident that the sacrifice of the cross, it's not in my strength, but it's in the strength that I know it's Him and God is looking at Him instead of me. My confidence that I can step into an ongoing relationship with Him, not just something that's theory, but a true relationship with the creator of the universe. It's not based on my strength, but it's His strength as the cornerstone. My confidence that my future is safe in His hands, that my wife is safe in His hands, that my children are in His hands that His plans and promises for my life, He is faithful to complete them. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That He is who I'm looking to. He's the one. He's the one that decides how far it's gonna be. He's the source of the strength in this whole thing. You know, the temple, uh, it was finished, finally. It was finished in 66 AD. And it was torn down again four years later by the Romans. Herod put up this incredible monument essentially to himself. And four years after completion, it came tumbling down. And in this room, there's testimony after testimony how 2,000 years later, Jesus is still keeping the promises of God. He is still changing lives. He is still breaking addictions. He is still bringing freedom. He is still bringing hope. He is still healing relationships with God. That's the difference between the temple that Herod set up, all in vain, all for his glory, and what Jesus rebuilt three days later after he was crucified, where he died on that cross for you and for me. A couple of questions for you. Hopefully you have a chance to think about this this week. The first one is, is is Jesus the king of your everyday or just your eternity? I don't wanna just trust him when I take my final breath that I'm gonna go with him and I can avoid hell. I wanna have confidence that every day he is leading me step by step. He is in the fight with me. He is with me on my worst day, just like he's with me on my best day. Is He the King of your life every day or just an eternity? Is He the sun in the middle of the solar system and everything else is revolving around Him? Is He better than just a Sunday morning to you? Is He just as important, just as real, just as vital on Wednesday afternoon as He is right now as we sit in a church building, as we're watching online? Is He just as important to you on Thursday morning or Friday night or Saturday lunchtime as He is in this moment? And the second question, do you approach God with confidence? Do you approach God with confidence? 
I'm going to say I believe wholeheartedly through my research and looking through a bunch of history, you know, a bunch of history books and watching YouTube videos and talking to dad this week that the people of God, the people who had a heart towards God, they couldn't have gone to the temple with confidence that this was going to heal their relationship with God. I don't know where that confidence would come from. The corruption was blatant. But we can. We can, confident that the sacrifice on the cross was enough. And that confidence changes everything. That confidence changes everything. And final verse I'd like to share with you today. Mark 11, 18. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus has done, this is after Jesus has flipped some tables and kicked some people out and told the animals where to go. They began planning how to kill him. What Jesus started in the temple, he decided was worth dying for. And the people that benefited from the corruption of the temple decided it was worth killing someone for. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus went willingly as that sacrifice for you and for me. Willingly. No one dragged him there. Any moment he could have backed out. And he went and he was that sacrifice. He died a death that I can't even begin to imagine. And he did it for you and he did it for me. And I wanna ask if you're here today, if you're a believer, I hope that the confidence you have in Him changes everything, every perspective you have. That work tomorrow cannot possibly be the same because you're confident in who Jesus is and what He did for you. If you're here right now and if, if you and I were to have a conversation, we were to say, you know what, are you, are you following Jesus? Are you, are you in a good relationship with God? And if you and I were to have an honest conversation, you'd have to say, you know what, I'm not. I believe God's out there somewhere, but He doesn't feel close. I don't have any confidence that He loves me, cares about me, thinks anything good about me. I don't want to let you know that God loves you more than I could ever describe. More than I could describe. And the love that He has for you and that He has for me is nothing short of life-changing. And I want to give anybody here that if you would be honest to say, you know what, I'm not in the right relationship with God. I'm not following God. I want to give you a chance to change that today just by praying a simple prayer. I prayed a prayer like this about 17 years ago and in that 17 years I've had ups, I've had downs, but I've never once regretted my decision to follow Jesus. I wanna give you that same invitation today. If you wouldn't mind all across this room, if you would just close your eyes and bow your heads, this is just to give privacy to people around you. But if you'd be honest enough and you'd be brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I wanna start. I'm not in a good relationship with Him but I wish I was. I'd love to pray for you. Right, if that's you today, if you could just put your hand up for a moment, just so I know who I'm praying for. Thank you, thank you, amen. Anybody else, I give you my word, we won't embarrass you. We won't do anything weird. I'd just love to know who I'm praying for. Anybody else here today? Amen, thank you. Awesome, awesome. But before we pray, Word of Life Church, can we please celebrate people finding God in here today and making the best decision anyone could ever make. And we're gonna pray a prayer together. The words are gonna be on the screen. 
and I'll say a line and then give you an opportunity to say it back. And I wanna invite everyone here to pray along. And if you're a Christian in here believing that someone praying this for the first time is gonna have a life-changing moment. So come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. But for those of you watching online today, if you're one of those people that made that decision, let somebody know. Click that button that says, I raise my hand. And I hope that someone from the team is able to get with you and uh, help you figure out what a next step might be. And if you're here in this room and you put your hand up, and even if you didn't put your hand up, but you know you wanted to, don't leave here today without letting somebody know that's the decision you made. No one's gonna embarrass you. No one's gonna do anything weird, but we'd love to help you figure out what a next step might be, amen? Amen. Word of life. I'm so glad I was able to come, uh, hopefully share something helpful with you. But when we go ahead, let's welcome Pastor Randy down as he comes. He's going to help us close out.